are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and happy Friday. You may have noticed that this week's episode is not out on our usual Monday slot, and that is because of President's Day, as well as some personal news that have caused a little bit of a delay with getting this episode out, but I'm very happy to share here. Um, I'll take a quick moment to say that as the host of this podcast, it's always been my goal to elevate and open up the conversation for our phenomenal guests, but Throughout this process, really enjoyed starting to bring in my own life, career, and experiences, and the feedback has really been resoundingly positive, so as long as it keeps serving a purpose, I will keep on doing that. And my news is that this week, I started a new role as a product manager in the financial services space on a really unique team uh, in a very large financial services organization. But my team is actually an internal startup, if you will, and we're working on building a new digital payments ecosystem from scratch. So it's just super exciting and just so much fun learning everything from my teammates. With more time, I'll share a bit more about my transition and consideration. But today I really want to focus on Laura Tackle-Mariam, who is just one of those people who is clearly so special, so knowledgeable, so dedicated to their professional craft, but also their purpose in making a real difference in the world. You probably know, but it is Black History Month, and I'm so honored that Laura came on to talk about that with us. She really opened up about her experiences and the way she approaches both innovation, gender, and of course, race. And uh, Laura's day job is that she's the head of product innovation for the animation team at Netflix. You can imagine just how much fun we had in this conversation, talking all about the role of gaming and animation and how innovation is really different in those spaces in relation to some of the other industry guests that we've had. And we really can learn so much and take back a lot to our own industries from her insights. I don't want to spend too much time giving the details of Laura's CV here as she goes into quite a bit of depth around that since she's just done so many different things, but something I personally connected with is being really unapologetic about your pivots and transitions and saying yes to new opportunities that push you to levels of growth, even if the timing feels off or not quite perfect. So with that, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hi, so happy to be here. Thanks for you know inviting me. Absolutely. I know you're a frequent speaker at conferences and a board member and a very busy member of the leadership team at Netflix. We'll talk about all things Netflix, of course, but I'd really love to start us off by talking a little bit about the notable moments in your career as you've worked in business, tech, and product capacities at companies like Microsoft, Deloitte, Tapjoy, Electronic Arts, as well as actually being a founder yourself. So kind of taking all of that, thinking back as you've made decisions to leave somewhere or to stay somewhere, uh, what have been your guiding principles or values by which you've operated in those decisions and or did you just go with your gut? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of everything. Let me start yeah. by saying that. 
Well, maybe it might help to kind of frame a visual for everybody around like how I see my journey. Um, you know, a lot of people look at their career journey as like a ladder where, you know, the you're on one rung and you're grabbing for the next rung and you're going mm-hmm. up the ladder. I tend to look at my background as a little bit more like a jungle gym. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were so many different exercises in that gym that taught me different skill sets. And so at the end of it, I think like I was a pretty good athlete at the end, but, you know, going through it, it was a little chaotic. Um, And so with that visualization now, let me kind of uh, add some more nuance. So early in my journey, I was a software engineer uh, by training. And I, you know, I went from Microsoft to consulting. The dual theme is trying to, you know, always figure out like, what else can I learn that goes against the status quo? And so as I uh, left consulting, I went into entrepreneurship. And I think any entrepreneur will tell you like, you know, you're really flying by the seat of your pants in some cases. In other cases, you have a very clear, uh, thoughtful plan and you kind of ping pong back and forth. And so being the entrepreneur taught me to be flexible. It taught me to be nimble. It taught me to be comfortable making quick decisions and optimizing and iterating and uh, experimenting through them. Of course, I didn't end up to be Mark Zuckerberg or, uh, you know, unfortunately, Larry Sergeant. I'm still... Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think it's the worst thing that's happened to you, but it's okay. (laughs) Still aspirational goals here. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. uh, But from there, I said, okay, I... I didn't obviously hit this innovation path right. Well, who did? And I went to go look up a Sequoia Capital funded startup called TapJoy, learning to innovate and grow advertisement on a new platform, which was mobile in like an entertainment space, which was games. After uh, TapJoy, of course, uh, they were focused on games. So I wanted to explore a little bit around uh, understanding how to create innovation through people's motivations, like very consumer. Um, This is where you're like, really honing in on product fit. So I dove into games. Um, I helped create some of the world's best games, which I, you know, it was an honor to be there from folks who are fans of uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes to uh, FIFA 16 on mobile to Battlefront 1. I mean, to Plants vs. Zombies and so many in my five-year journey Mm -hmm. at EA. Um, Leaving EA, I just continued my uh, advancement in my career. I went to go uh, head up a studio at Glue Mobile, who now is now acquired by EA. But at Glue, I head up the Disney Pixar studio to build an RPG game. And then from there, I went to uh, Warner Brothers to head up the DC Comics and the Harry Potter game. And then Netflix poached me and said, hey, you know, we think you're the right fit for this product innovation role uh, we have at Netflix to be the uh, chief, you know, essentially head of product innovation for all of animation. And um, that has, you know, definitely, this role has definitely challenged me. uh, But I think that through my time in the jungle gym, I've had all these experiences that now have helped me see yet like, I don't know what this obstacle course is yet, so I can't give it a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I, I definitely am using all those skills. So, so much to unpack there, and and I think just like starting with with something that I've I've heard you say in the past, and that it was a very long and tough journey to get into the gaming industry. So loaded question, but why is that? <sighs> yeah, you know the I think the key thing about games, you know, it's a very niche market. It's very male dominated. It's been given 
you know, a lot of people have said it's a toxic culture, toxic mm. environment. And, you know, what I'd say is like, I spent a decade in games almost. And the, the reason why it's hard to get in games is first, let's just talk about the economics. Games are expensive. They're a luxury right. item. They're, they're leisure. And so if you just think about owning an Xbox and having all the accessories in the games, you're already almost a thousand dollars in by the time sure. you get the full experience. Well, you know, most kids from inner city youth or from lower economic families may not have the luxuries to spend a thousand dollars early mm-hmm. in their early years. So they're playing on somebody's couch. They're playing through some friend. And so that already creates a barrier of experiences because when I can talk to other gamers saying like, yeah, I used to play Pong with my dad and I was playing on the Atari 2800 and then I got mm-hmm. an NES for Christmas and I can talk about my journey, my golden years coming into video games and how I was trying to hack DOS when DOS first came out in the 90s. Like that already put me in the the time frame of understanding the history of technology, those breakthrough innovations in games so that I know like, okay, where were those technologies at that point? Where am I today? And how do I want to move the ecosystem forward? And so people can learn that through the history books, but I do think there's, you know, having that exposure to those products does create like a deeper sense of appreciation that like when people aren't afforded those liberties early on in their journey, they have to figure out other ways to acquire it. And so that's what the first major step to barriers. The second, I think is very traditional to all, you know, very heavy male dominated fields or very niche fields Mm -hmm. where you don't see a lot of women in in the you know these boardrooms or in these corporate rooms where you just you know you have imposter syndrome you have isolation you have lack of sponsorship lack of mentorship and so you know then you end up having a lot more of the common themes you'll see uh in news today I talk to a lot of women who talk about some of those themes that you mentioned. And in some ways, to me, it sounds like, you know, everybody has a different experience. But to generalize some of the insights that I've been hearing, in some ways, it gets easier when you're more senior and when you have more poles on your jungle gym, you know, but it also gets harder because as you're getting more senior, there are less and less other women. There are less women of color and people of color as a whole. When you started as well as now, do you still have this sense of an outsider as a woman and as a black woman? And, and how have you kind of handled that? Yeah, you know, I still feel like um, I will always, I think, have a case of imposter syndrome. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm always like my worst critic, first of all. <laughs> like, right. no, I, I know that a little too well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's done is never enough. And like, right. even, you know, the journey, it, it just, I always feel like there could always be better. But um, you know, it's it's hard. I think everybody has bias, including myself. And sure. so, you know, one of the things I love about the last two decades is that, you know, society is recognizing what bias means and mm-hmm. like those conversations are happening. But it still doesn't remove the fact that we all have biases from the way we were raised to the way we were mentored to the, ra- the way we were sponsored. What I found in my journey was that I had to go f- find my people. Like there are some people who recognize there are systemic structures that are biased. And then there's Mm -hmm. some who choose to ignore it. And what I had to navigate early, mid, and even today is to find the people who, who recognize that there are systemic structures there and who are willing to support, mentor, and manage and sponsor you 
through that journey is very vital. And, you know, if you try to navigate to those who really could care less, I mean, you, you will see the results of that. So, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of theme that under the like, go find your people, like, go, you know, like, where's your, your advisory board, where's your board of directors who like, can continue to pour, can continue to help fill you up with the right advice you need to pursue forward. Right. Yeah, I I completely agree. And it really does take that one person to take a chance on you and maybe sometimes even reveal to you something that you didn't see in yourself as a result of imposter syndrome or, you know, society or other difficulties and adversities that are, you know, in the way. But thinking to gaming as far as developing exciting products and inclusive products and innovative products with the culture that is embedded into the gaming space and animation too. You really do have to be a fan of the space to kind of be able to innovate. You can't just like somebody, I'll call a spade a spade. Somebody like me can't just roll into gaming and say like, I play Mario Kart and 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 really be an innovator. So how did you go about, you know, really being able to innovate there? Did, did you immerse yourself into this game and into this community world? Oh, man, everybody gets a chance to jump in. Uh, you know, not everybody swims, but everybody can jump into the pool. <laughs> <laughs> what I'd say in terms of like how you innovate. So gaming, animation and VFX, just to kind of set context, are all similar. Uh, they all kind of come from the roots of computer graphics. And so they they have a lot of similarities. They're still different in their content format, but they're similar. And I've spent time in both, a lot of time in gaming and now time in animation. And I've gotten some exposure to VFX. What I would say is like, you do have to understand the craft. You do have to become a student of the craft because you get a lot, you meet a lot of um, domain specialists in these Mm -hmm. verticals who are hardcore they're going to challenge you so like when you try to come up with an innovative idea like remember I talked about that point earlier of like knowing the history like they're gonna if you try to come up with an idea that was tried to you know five years ago that there was this whole splash about that same idea and you don't even know that you're gonna get challenged you're gonna get shut down you're gonna get told about like your lack of knowledge and Mm -hmm. so that's one of the hard challenges in those three spaces is that they're very historical in terms of context. And I think that the industry has evolved, not through immediate disruption, like where you've just, it's not like Silicon Valley where you've had all of these sure. disruptions happen all over the place, but, and then I don't want to call it linear either. It's not like it's always been one over the other, but more gradual pace. So, you know, there's a lot more skepticism around innovation, around new ideas. And it makes for hard change management because if you have a new idea that maybe is actually new, being able to influence an organization, influence the ecosystem to pivot is a lot more harder with the barriers of the people than it is the technology itself. So, so fascinating, especially because I, with the world of innovation, I mean, I've had guests come on to this podcast and say, like, unless you're breaking everything and starting from the beginning and rethinking the whole thing, it's not innovation. And then I've had people come in and say, those in- incremental processes, those change management and people or, or projects or situations, that's the innovation. Looking at the importance of history, but do you sometimes you know, think that there's a different way to innovate in this space? Or have you kind of just accepted that this is the lay of the land in your space? (laughs) No, no. Now, look, I think I am a betting woman. And so, you know, you want to diversify a little bit, even in your innovation bet. So um, while you look at like the historical context, like you do want to 
um, hedge and have a couple big swings. And mm-hmm. you, but you just have to be very clear, like what advantage are you going to get from that swing? Because any in- innovation investment is going to require, you know, a level of pum- capital of some sort. And so you have to be willing to like weigh out the pros and cons of like in making that investment. I think if you just do incremental investment, I hate to be cliche, but you you know, there's this old saying, are we building a faster horse here? Or are we trying to jump to the car? You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, and so that's, good. that's the part that I think is really hard as a leader. You get a lot of folks who are risk adverse. They want to build a faster horse. You get people who are risk seeking. They want to build the car. They want to go to the, what is that Tesla cyber truck? I haven't even seen uh-huh. <laughs> oh, like I mean, At this point, it's like the rocket ship to the, to the moon or, or Mars or wherever he wants. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, got to appreciate Elon. But of course. But, but, so it, you get that. It, it is a spectrum. I think everybody's on a spectrum of that risk, uh, you know, the, their own appetite of risk. And part of that being an innovation leader is to help guide your teams through that risk spectrum and and so that you can have meaningful impact. And so, uh, you know, my favorite kind of value system is like, at the end of the day, are we changing the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that has guided, that principle has guided me well, because if I'm making incremental impact, then like, it isn't really true innovation. It's kind of like the faster horse. But if this pivot is going to really change the ecosystem for the better, and that's how I'm looking at Netflix and animation, which is like, you know, I have to tell you the truth. I like watched Moana. No, no offense. Moana is one of my favorite movies. I love mm-hmm. it. You know, love Disney. I, my kid, I have to, I'm a mother of three. And my kids love all Disney movies. But I was watching the credits and I saw the credits roll and I think it was like 300 plus people, if not more. Like in some movies are like 900 people worked on that wow. movie. And I just said to myself, like, what if there was a world where like half those people could make twice as many movies? Like, mm-hmm. what if like we could get that much better content where you don't have to wait a whole year for Disney to put out a really fantastic movie? For sure. That's the how do we get from the horse to the rocket ship. Talking about streaming, I mean, you know, I was contemplating whether I'm allowed to ask you this question or not, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So, you know, when you think about the streaming space, it's so, so exciting. We've heard like the era of all the news about streaming wars and this and that. And I think today, in some ways, the streaming companies have turned into a commodity because it's like you're going to go where there's the best content, where there's like the most exciting thing. You're stealing your friend's password. This one has Hulu. This one has Netflix. And then there's also moments of like the brands of these companies. You know, Netflix and chill is not going anywhere. I mean, that's like iconic to to the people. So I guess my question to you is thinking about streaming as a commodity, what do you see your role as decommoditizing it? Because I think that in some ways the innovation is is going to be that. Yeah, well, I have to officially say I'm not uh, I'm not here to formally speak on behalf of Netflix. My personal opinion on the matter, you know, I think that streaming is evolving. Like there are a lot more players on the scene, um, but one of the things we we can see in the news is that people still love certain brands at For the sure. end of the day, and you can see that by watch hours. You can see that by ratings. Leaning into the content because. It doesn't matter if you're streaming or if you're broadcast linear TV, content still wins mm-hmm. at the end of the day and, and even on theatrical. So like regardless of the distribution, if you have good content, 
your users are going to want to spend their time watching good content over bad or not so good. You know, my personal opinion, I think that's where Netflix wins is just it offers a lot better value when it comes to content. For me, my goal on like trying to deal with the commodity issue is to make content more efficient to make. Because right Mm -hmm. now it's a hundred year old industry, which has done a lot of things the same way. So again, back to like trying to disrupt and innovate this industry requires just a lot of thought around not just the tech, not just the process, but the people too. Absolutely. And and I do think that with animation specifically, there are so many more opportunities to tap into the world of technology rather than, you know, human capital as as a resource. With that, um, I know we've mentioned Zuck more than I typically mention him in a podcast, but, you know, the, the, the world is talking about the metaverse. And where I think metaverse is maybe not a gimmick is actually the world of animation and the world of gaming because that space really is the space where people make friends on the internet and want to immerse themselves in this world and and I guess blend fiction with reality. So do you see the next phase of animation, you know, being in the metaverse and does that world sound applicable to you? Well, man, we're going to just have to help mark out with the metaverse and you know, <laughs> let, let meta go figure that out. I'm still yeah. trying to get used to calling them meta. What I could say is like, I do think there are, you know, the metaverse is like another iteration of what can you do with computer graphics essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it's an imagination of connecting these things in a connected, like immersive experience. The, the hard part, I think, in his animation is a linear performance on television, or even if it was in VR, it's a linear performance that you're not necessarily bringing mm-hmm. agency to interact with. Whereas games, you have full agency to control your, your interactions in, right? Well, most controls. And so you have these completely distinct experiences. One is linear, which you are like watching from the sideline and the other you're engaging with. And so in order to kind of bring those two worlds together, there is a world where you can start to blend the two together. The hard part is now you're in, you're trying to figure out product market fit. Right. I was having lunch with Nate Mitchell. You know, Nate was one of the co-founders of Oculus and we're joking about, you know, Oculus. And I think at the time he was trying to recruit me to come over to home um, and Rift. And I had told him, I was like, I don't know about VR. I've been watching VR for the last decade. And I kind of like blurted it out. You know, I don't think VR is going to catch on until you fix the hat hair issue. And he like put his fork down and he was like, well, what are you talking about? Hat hair issue. And I was like, yeah, like I don't want to put on this contraption in the middle of the day and then my whole hair is messed up like makeup everything that's a good point it's a very valid point (laughs) like you know just if you want to have broad consumer adoption like you got to think through some of these first principles type things and he was like blown away and so since then like they've been you know Nate has long left uh, Meta, but, you know, they've been trying to figure out how do they create more um, accessible hardware to, you know, allow for it to be more common. And so I do think now tying that back to like the metaverse, I think the metaverse is, you know, one of these niche type um, ideals, which I don't know if we're quite 
there yet where we're going to have mass adoptions. I think there's going to be niche adoption, but until we start to create an experience that is more accessible to the everyday life, then people will start to enter into the metaverse. And so we're probably very early in that in those days, but I definitely applaud Facebook for trying to do something different and innovative. For sure, for sure. And, you know, going back to your your conversation about hat hair, somebody could look at that and be like, all right, Laura, good one, hat hair. We're not going to make product decisions based off of hat hair. But I think you raise an incredibly important point, and that is the founding team of any product, if that's a bunch of males or even just a bunch of women or, you know, insert any gender or race or pronoun here, at the end of the day, you're missing out on a huge you know, part of the population that hat hair is actually going to stop them from using it or taking, you know, moving away from hat hair. When you think about these like large contraptions, somebody may be afraid of them or, or feel like they, they are too robotic for them and they only, you know, are appealing to a certain sector of the population. And I think that's really where inclusive design comes in. And, and I've heard you give a talk about inclusive decision making as a means to drive product retention. So outside of just, you know, actually finding a product market fit, you know, how do you see those two things go hand in hand, product retention and inclusive decision making? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, design is at the core of like, did you build the right product, essentially, like before you build it, you got to think through like designing it for who, who's your customer, who's your end user you're you're creating, just so everybody listening has a a frame, a reference. Inclusive design making starts with understanding what's missing. A lot of people target in like, who's my customer first? And you start there and then you kind of broaden out once you've locked in your customer. And I I feel like inclusive design making is more around, okay, who's underserved? And then figuring out how do you capture that market by bringing products that are authentic to them. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit different. And I would say that this framework, when we create, I created it with um, a co-author who's, she's a um, director over at Facebook now, Meta, speaking of Meta, she's, uh, she just mm-hmm. left Twitch to go over to Meta, um, uh, Charmaine, so a really close friend of mine, uh, other product innovation and product management leader. But when we walked through this, we said, like, why is it that, like, you know, what are we having to inject in a lot of these, co- like, conversations that like other companies just don't have. And, and what we're constantly having to inject is exactly what you're saying. Hey, this user is not the only user in the globe that will use this product. And Mm -hmm. so who are we forgetting about? Who are we missing? Let's go look at the, the outskirts of the user and go see, do we see clustering? Do we see opportunities that are going to ultimately lead to retention or revenue? You know, there's no guarantees on revenue. So we kind of landed on retention. But through retention, you will like indirectly get the revenue. With that framework, we started saying like, well, why does, why don't, if this was so easy, why don't companies just do this? Right. And what we found was that what happens from design to product development is that you don't have enough people in the room to understand the authenticity of what you're designing. And so Mm -hmm. when you start feature cutting, those are the features that get cut. And so they never actually make it out into market to fulfill what they were originally intended for. And so you get these cookie cutter products out there, copycats, 
number twos who think they're number ones and like you don't actually get the inclusive design making. And so then part of the next step of our framework was like, well, how do we create the tools in place so that that those product cuts don't happen and they get left on the floor? And so things like understanding that diverse design uh, is going to require a team to understand how to manage the conversation. So, for example, if you put out a diverse product, you're going to get reactions from your core, sometimes even from your core users who are just not used to seeing a version of that product. I mean, games was notorious for having boycotting or some sort of that because they felt it was off the... um, storyline of that particular product. If you don't have a team in place, like whether it's your social media team, your marketing team, your customer service team, who's ready to help support the ecosystem, recognize this diverse entity of the product or this different version, then what's going to happen is going to backlash to your innovation and product development teams. Something that was near and dear to heart to me was at Netflix, they had created the Black Lives Matter like homepage takeover where they basically created a black collection of content that was a a metadata tag that allowed you to search all of the uh, content that had like a lead black character or hero or what have you by a term that created an opportunity to create conversation. We saw great signals within, you know, viewership among that content. So much so that Netflix then went on to do it again for Asian Pacific Islander content and then for women content and so forth and so forth. And what they started really doing, it had nothing to do with black people. What it created was inclusive design for those cohorts that we typically cut and we leave on the cutting room floor. And what companies are now starting to do is start to target segments beyond just like that one segment of product fit that they are originally aiming for. But the reason why the previously, I think these things didn't work was because they didn't have authentic enough products to have that product fit. So, you know, I tell people, I was like, if you don't have people in the room to bring in those authentic stories or designs, then you're going to release products that fall flat on their face. Well, yeah, well, I'd love for you to go on to this topic because I think, you know, before I, I ask you one more innovation question, something else I want to touch on and acknowledge is that it is Black History Month. And, you know, you've, of course, already shared such a wonderful example. But just to, to further ask you on that, one of the things that you've also previously said is that you have to build products like the world depends on it because it does. And even thinking about the example you gave with Netflix and people being able to see themselves on, you know, a streaming website and and being able to see films that speak to them and their identity in a world where a lot of the times the world is not built for those people. I'd love to hear about, you know, the larger importance of product as a whole and product in the diversity space. Yeah, that statement, that was like my closing statement, I think, at the Women in Product Conference, talking about resilience. And, you know, when I thought about, like, you know, why do I do this? Why do I spend countless hours, sleepless nights? Mm-hmm. Don't even talk about the pandemic 30 pounds I've gained. I, you know, I don't want to <laughs> go off topic. Um, but the what I've realized in my current role, when I first started looking at animation, my kids, you know, we went through all the animation stories and content. And you know, my daughter said to me, like, 
oh, mommy, is there a show that like, you know, where somebody looks like me? I forgot how she said something along that line. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think I was distraught because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to find something. And there were a couple of key titles that, you know, I showed her. She quickly burned through that. And then there is kind of this lull where I had didn't have much else to offer her. I've been at Netflix 16 months, so we're long past that and more content has come out. And mm-hmm. Now I can show my daughter content where she has literally said, while we're watching it, when we look at Ada Twisted Scientist, she would say, mommy, the mommy there, that's like you, mommy. And the baby, that's (laughs) like me. Why does this story matter? It's like games, animations, these are interactions and innovations that young people interface when they're in their early days. And why does that matter? When you're young, you are developing your creativity. You are create. We are creating the the frameworks around you of how you're going to solve problems in the world. And so, if your creativity is shaped with a very skewed lens, then when you go on as an adult to create judicial systems, financial systems, academic systems, you're going to create those systems with a creativity that's very like slim and very narrow. But if you are given an opportunity to have creativity that is so diverse, so robust, that it gives you a sense of experiences that you've traveled the world, then when you become an adult, you will also have those innate, those biases built into you that will help you create systems that go far beyond your home or whatever city you're from. And that's what animation and games can unlock for the world. And so when I say that statement, it you know, I really live by it as a core value that like, I truly believe I'm building products that the world counts on for the future. And every innovation officer, every innovation change agent is doing the same thing. Amazing. And so I guess with that, before I let you go, I'd love to ask you the one innovation question we ask all of our innovators. And that is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Well, one month from now, I just need to get through first quarter. (laughs) (laughs) See you there. um, Definitely, you know, launching more great content. uh, You know, I'm excited to see what's up uh, the next slate release for Netflix. Uh, One year from now, I'd love to see animation start to explore opportunities in like the AI space and like automation. I feel like far too many times artistic creative crafts get scared of technology and just, you know, allowing the ecosystem to be more flexible to explore like cutting edge tech. 10 years from now, I would have liked to have solved the metaverse and gone beyond that and, Mm -hmm. you know, been able to have, I I don't want to necessarily say 10 years from now, we're living on the moon, like Martians and and eating marshmallows. I hope not. No, 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 no. (laughs) definitely not. But I do wish for a world where like you can really see anywhere here. Like I would love a world where, I want to talk to my cousins in like, you know, Iceland and Boston. And we all feel like, you know, we're just right there in front of each other and we can feel those same connections and emotions. And, And I do think that that's where people are all trying to figure out how do we connect the world closer. My hope is to contribute to that by having content in the heart of that while you can connect together on content. And I hope to still be doing this 10 years from now. Um, because it's my passion. It's what I love doing. And again, I hope I'm changing the world, 
you know, one day at a time. I have no doubt about that. Thank you so, so much for joining us today on the Win Win Podcast. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Likewise. I'm so happy that this platform's here for women and those of you listening. Well, you know, you, you're the next generation. You're the next decision maker to helping us push innovation forward. So thank you all. And thank you again for the interview. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.